Good morning, city. How are we doing? Are we doing well? Before I get into Acts, just want to tell you about something that's uh, really exciting for those in our, uh, that our next-gen ministry uh, involves. So if you're a parent of city kids, can I get a hoorah? Yeah, there we go. City Kids, um, and this has been a dream for a, a while, but at the end of this month, we're planning a holiday program for our City Kids kids. That makes sense. Um, grade R to grade 3, a holiday program. It's in the first week of the holidays at the end of June. The dates are the 27th to the 30th. It's a Monday to a Thursday. And uh, what we want to do is put it in front of you, say, hey, this is a save the date. We, want, we don't want you to miss it. We want your kids to be there. It's going to be amazing. They're going to be... Uh, have a, a whole heap of fun. But what we need you to do today is we need you to actually sign up to express your interest in it so that we're able to get the ball rolling in terms of logistics and make sure Nikita and our next gen team is ready for that at the end of the month. Does that sound good? If you've got a city crew um, aged uh, kid that's pre-teens, uh, don't worry. We do have something planned for the Friday. There'll be more details coming out about that. That's going to be a, a full day for our grade R's right up to grade 7 uh, in the midst of holidays. Does that sound good? Cool. Well, we're going to jump back into the book of Acts, and we are kicking off a brand new mini-series, and the series is called The Gospel According to Acts. Type of title that's going to make you think. Like, what are, we, what are we talking about? What we're going to be doing is taking a look at a few very significant sermons in the book of Acts. And the sermon we look at today is actually in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, Peter's sermon. You'll remember if you were tracking with us, we're going through the book of Acts this year. Uh, we already have preached in terms of Pentecost, uh, being the coming of, and the giving of the gift of the Holy Spirit, but we very strategically skipped so the, uh, Peter's sermon because we knew we were going to come back to it again. And it's almost like we planned it that on Pentecost Sunday, we'd be getting back into Acts chapter 2. To be honest, we didn't plan it. It just kind of happened. I'm not going to lie to you. I'll put all cards on the table. We're good. We're not that good. Um, but it, ha it happens to be that on Pentecost Sunday, we're back in Acts chapter 2. And I've given this message uh, the title, The Other Upper Room. The Other Upper Room. If you're taking notes, you can, uh, you can say that. And the idea of the whole series is that there is this timeless truth that the gospel is both simple and profound. And so it is so simple that it can be explained in a few minutes. Last week, you would have heard Laurie speak about the first time the gospel was shared to her was as a nine-year-old by another nine-year-old sitting on a step. It's so simple that a child can explain it. And yet, its impact is so deep. The transformation in the human heart is so crazy that the more we plumb the depths of it, the more we realize it's a never-ending journey. And so as we look at these sermons through the book of Acts, we're going to find unique aspects and angles and perspectives so that we get a real comprehensive picture of how big, how good, how great this good news of Jesus is for us. And so as we dive into it, I'll catch you up on what has been a crazy morning for the early church in the city of Jerusalem. It has been a morning where they have woken up ready to go. It is the Feast of Pentecost. It's a feast celebration, according to the Jewish calendar and Jewish tradition, where they would celebrate the wheat harvest. And so the whole idea was to celebrate, to be grateful for God in his providing in the harvest, but also it was right in between the harvest of wheat and the sowing of barley. And so it was also to call on God for blessing and favor for the sowing season that was about to come. And so every good Jew, according to Deuteronomy 16, would make the trek to the temple. And so Jerusalem would swell to about nine times its normal population. Temple Mount would be filled on that day with about 100,000 people, all coming to celebrate this feast of Pentecost. And what we're told is on the morning of Pentecost, the disciples were there, the early followers of Jesus were gathered in one place, and the gift of the Spirit was given. Jesus had ascended. He had gone back to heaven. He had given them the command that you will be my witnesses, that you will be the church that my message goes out through. There'll be a 10-day um, break, and then Pentecost happens, and the Spirit is given. He says, go wait in Jerusalem for the gift, because what I'm calling you to do, you can't do on your own. You need to be empowered by my Spirit. And on that morning, as they are in the midst of everyone celebrating Pentecost, the Spirit would fall, and it would come like a rushing wind. Imagine the, the sound of like one million fire extinguishers going off. That, that's the sound that would be there. And that rushing wind would then have fire, things like tongues of fire above their heads. 
And they would begin to praise God and speak and preach in foreign languages, languages they did not know. And it causes this huge commotion to all those around, and it draws attention to it because now people begin to hear God being praised in their native language. But they know that these are Galileans. And the only conclusion some of them come to is, surely they are drunk. And in the midst of that scene, in that commotion, Peter stands up and he'll preach the first distinctly Christian sermon post the ascension. And he'll lay out the gospel to this crowd that had gathered, who were questioning what's going on here. And in the midst of that, as we break down Peter's sermon, I want to do it under these three questions. The first one is where, then what, then why? Where was it said? What was said? And why it matters to us 2,000 plus years later? Where, what, why? Let's jump into the first one. Where was it said? I think this is really important. Like it might be something we skim over a little bit in our reading of scripture, but it's so important to dive deep and pull out what, what God is wanting to say, even in the location of this, of, of this event. Now, if you've been around church, if you've celebrated um, being in any type of church service on a Pentecost Sunday, I might be able to ask you the question, well, where did Pentecost happen? Where did it actually, where, where did they hear the rushing wind? Where did the tongues of fire fall? And most would give an answer to say, didn't it happen in the upper room? Church tradition would hold to that concept. The question I would follow up with is, which upper room? Because I think the picture we have is sometimes the upper room experience of being an upper room in a house, almost like the painting of the Last Supper. They're in the upper room of a house. They're, they're, they're there. They're all together. I think it's quite a different picture when you look at the clues given to us in Acts chapter 2. I believe it is another upper room where we find the disciples and Pentecost going down. And this is my hypothesis based on the clues I'll lay out for you in Acts chapter 2. I don't believe the upper room was the upper room of a house. I actually think the upper room that gets mentioned is the upper room of the temple. That actually this all took place on Temple Mount. It isn't funny that the place where Israel believed the spirit of God was housed. He says, hey, my spirit is going to fall a different way. Because it's not going to fall in a geographic location. It's going to fall on my sons and daughters. And there's a few reasons why I believe this. So I, I want to put this picture up of Temple Mount for you, just to kind of orientate us all. Um, this is Temple Mount as it stands right now, modern day. You'll see the Dome of the Rock there right in the middle. Um, as a non-Muslim, we're not allowed to go there, but we're allowed to be anywhere in the outer courts. This is one of the three most holy places for the Muslim world. Since the Middle Ages, they have held control of this Temple Mount. I think God knew what he was doing. Because he says, hey, worshiping me doesn't need to happen here anymore. Um, but uh, we'll go to the next one just to give you a bit of a picture of what it would have been like in the old days in first century Jesus' time. The red would have been your outer walls. They're still standing as it is. And then down here in the southern area, we've got the north to the top, southern to the bottom. You had in yellow the southern steps. And so any devout Jew, any good Jew would know as they entered into Jerusalem, they would first make their pilgrimage to the temple. They would do it coming up the road through the valley road. And they would come through the southern steps, and they would enter through the southern entrance, and they would go in to worship. But in that area to the right, the eastern side, the eastern wall, all the way down north to south, you have that green area known as Solomon's Colonnade, Solomon's Portico, or Solomon's Porch, affectionately known as the upper room of the temple. See, there's a few reasons I believe that is where Pentecost happened. Number one is this. Number one reason is space. We know that the early church pre-Pentecost, that day 3,000 people would come to know Jesus and the church would explode. Mega church. But pre that, there were 120 followers of Jesus that were at his ascension that he would actually call and, and give this commission of, of his kingdom to. And it says that those at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, all 120 were in the same place. If you have ever seen a first century house in Jerusalem, even a big one with an upper room, you were not going to fit 120 people in there at one time. You needed more space. Solomon's colonnade at one time could house 30,000 people. It's massive. The longest wall of the temple is about 450 plus meters. It is a huge piece of property. And that's how it could house 100,000 people. And listen, if God's goal to me 
was to launch the church to explode his kingdom. Why not do it right there? Second reason is the timeline. We know that there's 10 days that happen between the ascension, 40 days after Easter, and Pentecost, 50 days after Easter. So what happened in the 10 days? Sometimes we get the idea that while well, they waited just cowering in the little house. But actually Luke, who writes the, gospel, uh, writes the gospel of Luke and is the author of Acts, he records this in his final verse in his gospel. In verse 52 of Luke chapter 24, he says, And they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. This is post the ascension. And were continually in the temple, blessing God. I think it's very clear that during those 10 days of waiting, they weren't cowering in a house, but they were worshiping God, even going to the temple as they always had. It was a very different going to the temple to what had come before, but they were there. And Acts 2 starts out and says they're in one place. Third reason I think that this is where it all took place was their proximity to not just people, but their proximity to what was going on in the midst of the temple. Their proximity to devout Jews who had come from all over. The fact is, when you were a devout Jew coming from afar, you often would struggle to find accommodation in now packed Jerusalem. And so an option that was always available to you was to find shelter on Solomon's porch. It was a covered area, shaded area, that was available to take you out of the sun during the day and even to give you housing at night. And so it's no shock if a commotion broke out that those who had come from afar were the first to hear. And so they begin to hear the foreign language, the, their native language, and go and start to question, what are these crazy Galileans doing? How do they know my language? It makes sense in their proximity. And with God's heart being to see his kingdom explode, to see his church born on this day, it would make sense that he does it in this place, that he does it in the proximity of these people so that more and more could hear his message. That was where it was said. Let's get into the what, what was said. Peter, in the midst of this commotion, will get up and he will address the crowd. And we know 3,000 will convert and come to, come to know Jesus that day. So I can tell you, I'm pretty sure the crowd was far bigger than the 3,000. If 30,000 could fit on the porch, 100,000 fit in the temple, there was a heck of a lot of people who heard Peter's message. But he starts out in verse chapter 2. And it says, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. This isn't even really a point. It's a throwaway, but I can't not say it. I'm so struck again by this truth that God meets us where we are exactly where we are, where we are physically, where we are emotionally, where we are mentally, where we are spiritually. If we are those who are, are coming as devout Jews, but we're serving a dead religion to tick a box because we need to honor what has happened in the harvest and need to get ready and sow the seeds for what will come in sowing, Jesus will meet us right there. Even though we're in a place that used to house his spirit, that, that used to be the place of worship for our people, but is not any longer because Jesus has come, he will meet us there and point our direction and our perspective back to him. And it makes me think how many of us had that moment where God met us. And the question I would ask is, where were you? Where were you physically? Where were you mentally? Where were you emotionally? Because it's so important to remember where we were, to remember just how good God is that he meets us there. Because the lie we always fall into as humans is, hey, I need to clean myself up before I can go to God. I need to clean myself up before God will see the value in me. But the truth is God will meet us in our mess whatever our mess looks like. It might be religious mess as these Jews were in. For me, he met me as a teenager. And I wanna tell you, he met me in, uh, some un, with some unholy motivations. Because the thing that got me to church, the thing that got me to youth, was I was chasing a hot girl. Unholy things. But he grabbed a hold of my heart. And so it doesn't matter if we're chasing a dead, dead spiritualized religion or we're chasing a hot girl in an Ed Hardy miniskirt. <laughs> Only people of like my generation will just understand what Ed Hardy is as a brand name because it had my generation by the throat. But he could use even that. He will meet you there and he'll grab a hold because he is pursuing us 
for salvation. And maybe that's not your story yet. Maybe you haven't had the moment where God has met you wherever you are. I just want to say all cards on the table. Today might be the day. Because he's meeting you physically here in this room. He's meeting you physically on this stream. And he has something to say. He's got a message and it's a message for your heart. He continues. He says, for these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's since it's only the third hour of the day. It's about 9 a.m. Now, let, let me tell you, uh, any good Jewish person would be on Pentecost at 9 a.m. in the temple. But no good Jewish person would be drunk or drinking wine at that time. That comes later. The feast is there. The celebration is there. I'm a golfer. I know 9 a.m. on a golf course somehow doesn't matter to anyone. But to a Jew in, in Jerusalem in the first century at Pentecost, at 9 a.m., it did matter. And so Peter already wipes that off the table and says, hey, that's not what's going on here. Let's be honest. Let me, get, let me inform what's happening here. He turns their attention. He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And then verse 21 says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He points them to something familiar. He says, actually, you know what? What you are seeing here is not what you think. It's actually something you know because in your word, in your scriptures, in the Old Testament prophets, it spoke of this. And so he points to the words of Joel and he says, you will see this in scripture and you're now seeing it happen in the flesh. He says, don't be surprised by these things. God spoke about it all those hundreds of years ago and now you're seeing it fulfilled. He then even continues, because he actually uses this phrase, in the last days. And for the Hebrew mind, that was an important phrase, because it had a twofold meaning. It didn't just encompass the end of things, the end of days, the last days. It also encompassed the idea of the messianic age. The last days would be the days that the Messiah had come. The Messiah was promised to them as the one who would bring them freedom, the one who would bring salvation. And in the midst of those last days, he will rule and reign. A Hebrew mind would understand the timeline of scripture and the timeline according to history. They knew that there was the period of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There was the period of the judges. There was a period of the kings. There was a period of the prophets. And then there would be the last days, the period of the Messiah. And what he wants to say is, hey, the last days that were prophesied and spoken about were in them. They were in them then, we are in them now. He continues and says, men of Israel, hear these words. It's going to get very specific. He hinted at, hey, I want to tell you about the, mess the Messiah. Understand every ear would have been getting closer, like we want to hear about this. And then he gets very specific. He says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He gets very specific and he says, hey, remember Jesus? And understand, he didn't have to go into much detail for these guys because for them it was a mere 50 days ago. And so he doesn't need to go into much detail. He just says, hey, remember? They go, yeah, we were there. A large part of that crowd would have been there Easter weekend. A large part of that crowd would have been there Good Friday, screaming, crucify him, give us Barabbas. And even if you had come in for that week for the feast, trust me, it was all anyone was talking about. You knew. For many who were sitting there, they had seen the mighty works done through Jesus. They had seen his miracles. Peter points them back to it. He then says in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite and definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter is making a case for the Christ. He's making a case for Jesus as the Messiah. He first says, hey, remember he's attested by the works you saw. But let me take you to the moment where you killed him. And don't think that it is a sign of weakness because actually it is ultimate strength because it falls within the definite plan of God. 
See, they had thought, oh, we have been under oppression. We were gonna get, we're going to get political freedom by the Messiah. How does that work when the Messiah got killed by the political authorities? He says, you missed the boat because what you haven't realized is that this is the definite plan of God. This was spoken about in the prophets, that it is through his death that we can have life. God knew what he was doing. The suffering of Jesus was a part of the plan. He wants to reorientate them. He then says in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter has an answer to the question that every single person at that time was asking. And the question was this, what about the empty tomb? No one had an answer for that question. The Roman authorities didn't have an answer for it. They thought, maybe this is a hoax. Maybe his body is... It was embarrassing for them. The religious leaders who had plotted Jesus' death had no answer for the empty tomb. So Peter, in the midst of it, says, hey, I want you to know I'm the only one who has an answer here. And the answer is actually this. The tomb is empty because he's no longer there. He is risen. Because he is the one who can conquer death. He is the one who death cannot hold him. The pangs of death are gone. He then continues and he even ups the ante because he doesn't just point to prophets. He doesn't just point to what had happened in the day. He points to one of their greatest. He says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He'll take it a step further beyond the prophets, beyond what had gone on. And he points to their greatest king, superhero David, the one who was revered, the one who was honored. And he says, look at what he said about these things. He points back to a time a thousand years before this, which for Israel would have been, they would look back on it with rose-tinted glasses. Because a thousand years ago was the only time we didn't experience oppression. Under David's rule was the last time Israel knew freedom. Because for a thousand years, they had been oppressed and ruled by others. They had been oppressed by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, by the Greeks. And now in the first century, they are under the heavy Roman oppression. They were so desperate to be freed. They were so desperate for their savior, their Messiah. And Peter wants to point out, hey, you missed him, you killed him. He would know no corruption. He would know what it meant to defeat death. Because he'll continue in verse 29 saying, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. He says, hey, David was a good guy. He was the best of us. But David's dead. Jesus is alive. What is better, the one who is dead or the one who is alive? Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that's David, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus would see no corruption. He would live a sinless life. His body would see no decay because he wouldn't be abandoned to hell and Hades because death had no victory over him. Actually, he was the one who grabbed the keys of life and had victory over death for us. And he ends with this saying, for David did not ascend into the heavens, Jesus did, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He quotes from Psalm 110. It's the most quoted Psalm referenced in the New Testament. Basically, David, the hero of heroes, the one who is called Lord over Israel, has someone he calls Lord, and he's Jesus. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. He says, hey, your prophets spoke of him. The things you are seeing in this day, his mighty works, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Even your greatest king spoke of him. And all of it attests to this, that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is Lord, that he is the one who overcame death on our behalf. He is the one that you crucified. And I want to highlight that because there's two times that he actually very clearly says, whom you crucified. He puts the, uh, the, 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 the indictment out there. And the question is, in the context of the scene, who's he talking to? Surely he's not talking to everyone. Surely he's only talking to those who were in the crowd, who 53-ish days before had cried out, crucify him, give us Barabbas, kill him. Surely that's who he's talking to. Because they very clearly had an active role in the death of Jesus. But Peter, in the midst of laying out the gospel for the very first time publicly after the ascension, he's, he, he, he hits on a very harsh truth, but it is a foundational truth to all the gospel, that every single one of us is responsible for the cross of Christ. It wasn't just those who actively cried out, crucify him. Actually, in the midst of our sin, the cross is now necessary. And so we hold responsibility, culpability, even in the cross of Christ. It doesn't matter if you were the one who was in the crowd. It doesn't matter if you were the one who just arrived in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Or you sit in a seat today or listen to a stream. Pentecost 2022, it doesn't matter, we're all there. And it's why it says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If God is creator, if he is the one who has made it all, if he is holy and perfect, it means he has the power to set what is right and what is wrong in the world. And because he is holy and perfect, he doesn't just set a standard, he is the standard. And every single one of us will fall short of that standard. And when we fall short, we actually partake in the necessity of the cross. Because it is for those that the wages of those, that sin that is death. And Jesus came to overcome death. And so if we weren't in sin, if we didn't fall short, Jesus doesn't have to die. But he does. And so every single one of us will find culpability for the cross of Christ. I want to give you this analogy because I think it's so important to understand when we, when we want to take a look at the concept of us falling short. I think many of us can get the idea, yeah, I'm not perfect, I do fall short. Whatever God's standard is, I'm under it. But I think we need to turn, turn it even more so on its head and get a deep understanding of what the gospel is really saying. This is, this is a bar graph I, I love to use. And I, I, I get it's a concept that we can, we can get mentally and we, we can get with, with intellect. But I think it's a concept we need to realize at a heart level too. Um, often what we'll do is say, cool, here's a standard. We get it. God sets the standard, the yellow line, the gold line, whatever you want to talk about, the golden thread. He sets the standard of what is holy and perfect and good. And all of us will try get there in this life. And we'll build up our tower as high as we possibly can. But we understand, hey, we're not perfect. We're going to mess it up. There'll be some minuses there. And so you might have the Mother Teresas of the world who have got skyscrapers. And you might have others who have molehills. But at the end of the day, we all fall short. Can I tell you that's not the gospel? Can I tell you what the gospel is? Is all short. This is actually what the gospel looks like. Red graph. We don't even get on the board. <laughs> because when we're honest with ourselves, and this is a real truth to the gospel, it tells us the truth about our heart. I've often thought about this, that there's so much grace in the gospel because it does tell us the truth about ourselves first. We often think in our humanity, hey, I'd love a God that just told me I'm awesome. I'd love to have a God that said, hey, you, you, you've got this. The way you think, the way you speak, what you do, it's all good with me. It would make life easy because I get to do it my way. But the truth the gospel tells me is that actually your heart is broken by sin 
that when you are left to your own devices, and I know this to be true, I will go my own way. I would rather pick it myself. I'd rather decide myself. Don't tell me based on your way, your truth, your word. I know that at a heart level. And so it's very freeing when the gospel starts out by saying, hey, you crucified him. This is the truth of your heart. This is the truth of the state of your heart. It's broken by sin. Let me help you fix it. All, create, all humanity is created equal by God. And all humanity is equal in its depravity and its heart against God. There's three indictments on every single one of us. doesn't matter if we were there 2,000 years ago or sitting in a seat right now. First indictment is this. We will always lean to this. We will choose creation over creator. We don't want God. We want his stuff. Our question is, hey, what can I get? Not God, what can I give you in gratitude and worship? Second indictment on all of us is we will be, believe this lie over the truth. And this is the lie. That I am greater, smarter, better at being God than God. Now, I don't think outside of a psychology office you will ever hear anyone vocalize or articulate that. But when we look at our actions and our lifestyles, it says it. It screams it. Because we often will say, hey, because I feel like this, I'm going to do it. Because I feel this is right, I'm going to go for it. Because I believe this is the way I should go, should live, should speak, should think, I'm going to do it. I'm going to live my truth. We scream in the truth that we believe we're a better God than God. Because we want to sit on the throne and call the shots. It's another indictment on all of us. And the last indictment is this. That we fail to honor what is good and that it's from God. God is good. He gives us good gifts. He also gives us good ways of doing things, of going through this life. And it's only when we grab a hold of the good things and connect that they're from God and for God that we get to see it flourish. But so often we say, hey, let's take the good and glorify ourselves. Let's take the good way of God and go our own way. Let's take the good gifts of God, our skills, our talents, how we've been wired, uh, the blessing we have, and let's use it to glorify self instead of glorifying God, the one who gave it. We will always take what is good. But so rarely do we connect it back to the one who gave it. Those are the three indictments. All have fallen short. I love how Romans 3 continues though. It says in verse 24, those who have fallen short, and are justified. Justified means made right. By what? By his grace as a gift. It's not by our effort, our energy. It's not by us getting up the temple, following Deuteronomy 16, being there at Pentecost, being at prayers in the first hour, the third hour. The, the, it's not about that. It's about his gift of grace. So we get through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Let me lay out what propitiation is. People love it. I said it horribly in the ATM. I said it right now. Because we have fallen short, because we have missed the mark, because we have chosen our own way over God's way, because we have fallen into sin, God as a just, holy creator, the one who is the standard, has a right to overtly punish that sin. But Jesus in his blood is a propitiation. What that means is that for the offense that was caused, that actually welled up the, the just wrath of God, in his blood, that can be paid for. The penalty can be absorbed by Jesus, his death, the shedding of his blood. So that in his death, in him paying the price, you and me can in exchange receive his holiness, his righteousness. That doesn't cause offense. God can justly have wrath against our sin. He can. He's the creator. He's allowed to do that. But understand the grace of God in saying, hey, I'm going to make a way that you can be redeemed back to me. So that the debt can be paid and it will be by the propitiation, the, the paying of my own son's blood.
This is why it matters. This is why it matters. Because as he has laid out the gospel 2,000 years ago, and as the gospel gets laid out now for all of us throughout the day, I really believe this, that the gospel always demands a response. Because it's an invitation, it's an offer. It's why Romans 3.25 says it can be received by faith. It's a gift that's an offer. And it will demand a response from every one of us. And I know some of us, our story is we've run from God. Because we actually want to abstain and not make a call. Can I tell you, even that is a response. It demands a response. Look at the response of these people on the Temple Mount in Acts chapter 2. Verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Can I tell you, if you're a preacher, this is great, a great passage because it, it really does set the bar for us. You're preaching well when you get interrupted halfway and the people say, Cool, got it. What shall I do? I've never been interrupted in a preach and I had someone ask, like, well, I'm hoping one day it will happen. Come ask me afterwards, what shall I do? That would, be, that would be just for me. And Peter replies. And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What you just saw happen could happen with you. And then verse, verse 40 is for the preachers like me. Because I know some of us will look at this and be like, Dunks, that was 14 verses. The gospel's easy, man. Done. Waxed. Why do we preach so long? Verse 40, Peter helps us out. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. I love that Peter is such a preacher that even though he could have probably ended it there and been like, cool, let's baptize. He says, I've got two more points. Let's, let's get back to it. He continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. The gospel demands a response. And for 3,000 people, because I, I do believe the crowd would have been much bigger, for 3,000, they are cut to the heart, and they respond saying, what do we do? What do we do? There's an old Puritan saying, because in the context here, it does mean that there was 3,000 that turned, converted, gave their life to Jesus, but it means there was probably many thousands who didn't. There's an old Puritan saying that says, hey, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The gospel will often offend us in our hearts. It will tell the truth about us to us, and it will offer up a way out. But what the gospel also can do is reveal the state of our heart. Do we have a, a soft heart that can be cut, that can be pierced, so that his grace, his mercy, his love can get in? Or will it be a hard heart where nothing gets in? And actually the preaching of the word is like that sun on the clay. The more and more it's there, the more it gets baked in hard, tough, cemented. And I think there's a warning to us, especially if you've been in church circles for a while, or you feel like this is actually a part of my rhythm and routine. If you walk in here week in, week out, if you're on the stream week in, week out, and you're allowing your heart to hear a message week in, week out, and it's hard, the word's not able to get in, understand you're making the job that much harder. It will be that much harder for his grace, his mercy to get in. Because the state of our heart needs to be soft to the point where it can be cut. These 3,000 people were cut to the heart and their response was, what shall I do? And Peter will tell them these two things, repent, be baptized, and it's important because repent is very clear in what it says. Repent means to do a 180, to turn completely away from what you were doing, where you were going, saying, hey, turn away from your sin, turn away from your old mindset, because it leads to a destination that is not a place you want to go. Turn, repent, don't do that. Go the other way. But then also be baptized. And baptism is such a beautiful picture because it, it represents our rebirth. It's where we identify with Jesus in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection to life. And so we get a new identity in Jesus. And it's not the power in the water, it's the power of the Spirit that makes a dead heart alive. 
It's that spirit that changes our heart to the point where we now have this new identity where the banner over us, the name over us is Jesus. And that's where we can receive the Holy Spirit. And scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is our seal of salvation, meaning that Jesus actually stamps us as his possession, as his seal of approval. And so it's so important that those two things are mentioned. Because he says, hey, you're my possession. You can be in right relationship with me. My plan for redemption can find completion in your heart turning back to me. Receive it by faith. Just before we get ourselves ready to take communion, which is a beautiful picture for exactly what we've heard. I want to take a quick look at Peter. I actually wanted to, I was very close to cutting this out to preach and a few people in the ATM were like, nah, do that one. I just want to take a look at the difference the Holy Spirit makes. Because Peter's a great case study for it. Peter, pre-Pentecost, pre this Holy Spirit empowering him, um, dwelling within him, is a, let's just be honest, in scripture, he's the guy we love to make fun of. Because he would be the guy who puts his foot in his mouth, says the wrong thing at the wrong time, makes a million mistakes, gets it all wrong, and yet Jesus still says, hey, it's you. But there was a few things that I want to note when he didn't have the Spirit, when it was pre-Pentecost. We see examples where he has great faith but wrong focus. You have this moment where Jesus is walking on the water. Peter's the one who has great faith and says, Lord, if you call me to come, I know I will. And he walks on the water, great faith. But he gets wrong in his focus because he turns his focus to the storms, his own limitations, and begins to sink. We also see he's got great devotion but wrong direction. A key moment, Jesus is with his disciples and he asks this question. He demands a response. He says, who do you say I am? And Peter's the one who has the guts to stand up and say, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are him. And Jesus says, it's on that statement that I will build my church. But in the next, like so much great devotion, in the very next conversation, he gets his direction completely wrong. Because Jesus will go on to say that the Christ has to die. Peter doesn't like that direction. And so he'll actually go rebuke the Messiah he just spoke of. And say, that's not the direction I think we should go. I don't think the plan is that you die. That's not, this, no, that's not how this works. Great devotion, but wrong direction. We also see great desire, but wrong actions. He now gets a, a, a bit macho and a bit more chiased up about it. Because in a conversation just a little while later, Jesus will again foretell of his death. And Peter's the first one to say, I'm with you. I'll die alongside you. But when Jesus is betrayed and arrested, the first one to flee is Peter. And he'll slink back trying to see what's going on as Jesus has been arrested and is being beaten um, by the soldiers. And it's in that place that he'll deny Jesus three times. Wrong actions, but great desire. And then there's great salvation, but wrong purpose. In John 21, Jesus has now pulled off Easter He's resurrected. He's done exactly what he said. He has brought the salvation that he has promised, great salvation. And he's appeared to his disciples. But where we find Peter in John 21 is he has gone back to the familiar. He goes back to the beach where Jesus had called him originally and now he is fishing again. His purpose gets all messed up. He forgot that that was the place Jesus had called him to a new purpose. Where he said, you're no longer going to be fishing for fish, you'll be fishers of men. And so he, Jesus has to call him back to his purpose and correct his mindset. Great salvation, wrong purpose. And then Acts 2 happens. Pentecost, tongues of fire, rushing wind. The spirit dwells within Peter. And look at the difference it makes. We now see him understanding there is a great giver with a great way. Understand Peter was a gifted guy. And it takes gifting to move the kingdom forward. Jesus puts it there for a reason. But he has a way for which it should go. He has a purpose for which it should go. And Peter needed to realize that even in my gifting, there is a way that God calls me to go about it. That even in my gifting, I can never forget the giver. We also see great power with great purpose. There's great purpose put on Peter to lead the apostles to, to be the anchor for the church in that early first century, to be the one to preach this message. But he couldn't do it on his own. 
He needed that great power of the Holy Spirit within him to empower him. That's why Jesus says, wait. Go to Jerusalem, wait. Don't do anything until the Spirit comes because then this thing will move. And the last thing we see is great fruit with great faith. We see the great faith of Peter in that before he had no boldness, he was shy, he denied, he was, he, he, everything you could imagine that could go wrong would go wrong with Peter. But in this moment, as he stands up in Pentecost to a crowd that he know, knows has put people to death, in boldness he'll proclaim, this is the truth. This is who Jesus was and you killed him. He has great faith that the gospel will move. He has great faith that the church, Jesus has put all his chips in on the church. And what comes of it? Great fruit. 3,000 people in one day. And what we see now, 2,000 years later, is a church that has completely changed the history of humankind. I think Peter is such such a perfect picture for just how big a difference the Holy Spirit can make. And it's a warning that we can never work outside of that spirit. We can never walk outside of that spirit, no matter where we find ourselves. But that spirit only gets into us when we have accepted the invitation. That spirit only gets into us when we have been cut to the heart and we allow the gospel to tell us the truth about ourselves, the truth about Jesus. And we know that the offer is there and we grab it with both hands. I want you to know this. You don't need to be cleaned up come to Jesus he'll meet you in your mess because the only thing you bring to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary that is all we bring we come with miry clay with messed up hands with messed up feet with messed up mindsets with messed up actions with messed up thoughts but Jesus meets us in our mess we don't have to get cleaned up first And so as we get to this meal, and it's a meal, I know we take it like this, it's helpful, but it's a moment where we get to remember again, not just that we have communion with each other, but that actually we get communion with our eternal creator, and that comes through the power of Jesus. And so it's a moment where we get to remember the picture of Jesus on the cross. It's also a moment where we get to remember the power of Jesus that lives in us. And so I'm going to actually ask you if, you, if you're around, we've got stations with communion elements all around. Go grab those elements. If you're in a group, maybe send someone just to grab uh, some for you just to help the crowd. But we're going to take that together and then we're going to sing. So get yourselves ready, go grab those elements, and I'll be up in a moment. We're not going to take communion yet. I'm going to wait for those guys to grab the elements. But I, ju- I just feel this strongly. I think there's a, there's a person or two here. And I had it in my notes, but I never went to it. But there's a story around the eastern gate of the temple. That eastern side of Solomon's porch, there's a gate. It's known as the Golden Gate. 
And today you could go there and that gate is sealed. Bricked up completely. You can't get in and out. And it gave me a picture that I think there's some people who have maybe put bricks up, built up walls in their heart and God's trying to get in. And the significance of that gate is that in Zechariah talks about it. It's a prophecy that when, the, when Jesus comes back again, he will enter through that gate. And there was a sultan who took over Temple Mount in the Middle Ages who heard of this prophecy and decided, I don't want no king coming to take my piece of land. And so he had it bricked up and it stayed sealed ever since. Can I tell you no bricks of men can hold back Jesus? And so if you are that person that has built up a wall in the entrance to your heart, can I tell you, Jesus can break it down. He's knocking on the door. If only you would answer and let him in. Because this is a meal for those who have made Jesus Lord, who have submitted to his authority, who have said, hey, you know what? It's your way, not my way. And as difficult as that might be, understand it changes a human heart to the point where our desires are no longer the same. You might think you want this now, but you don't. Because with a new heart will come new desires. And you've walked through strife and struggle because you've, it's been all on you. Can I tell you, you don't need to have that strife and struggle because Jesus is our portion. Jesus is the one who holds us up. He is the one who we walk in His strength, not ours. It's by His birth, not ours. Come to Him today. And as we do this meal, Jesus took the bread on the night He was betrayed and He said, this is my body and it will be broken for you for your redemption, to pay your price, to bridge the gap between you and your creator God. And he said, take and eat and remember me. And then he took the cup and he took the cup and said, this is my blood, that propitiation that thing that would pay the price, that would pay the debt so that all of your failure, all of your shortfalls could be covered over so that we sit on that yellow golden line as the standard, not because of anything we've done, but because of the price that was paid by Jesus. And so when we drink, we get to drink in celebration that we are ones who get to be called sons and daughters, sons and daughters where it is appropriate for the Spirit of God to fall on us. And I just want to remind you of that picture of Jesus. That as blessing was laid on the early disciples at Pentecost, it was on the back of the wrath of God being laid on Jesus. That in the same way that their heart was pierced, Jesus' side was pierced for us. That in the same way they had tongues of fire over them, he would have to go through the fire of death to steal the keys of life so that death and Hades would have no reign over him or us in him. That's what we celebrate. Let's drink together. Best thing to do after that, and I'd encourage you, if God's doing business with you, I'd love to have a chat with you afterwards. I'd love to pray with you. We're all available, ready for that. The gospel demands a response. You can respond now. Please do. But a good response for every single one of us is to worship, to celebrate, to know that there is grace upon grace for us, that it wasn't our action, it wasn't our strength, but it's His. And so let's turn our eyes to Jesus. Let's uh, turn our hearts. Let's give gratitude to Him. Let's sing together.